Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one under the chair in front of you and turn to page 898. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement, for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. I know last week we had an uh, opportunity to gather together as a larger group to start some of the discussion uh, from Pastor Eugene's sermon from the latter part of chapter 6 um, on true sexual liberty, um, I want to encourage you to continue your discussion in your smaller groups, uh, as I believe it will be a lot more freer to discuss in same gender. Um, would you join me as we continue to worship, as we pray? Gracious God, we do not, we cannot live by bread alone. So Lord, let the heavenly food of the scripture we're about to hear, nourish us today in the ways of eternal life through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Amen. So as I mentioned uh, last week, we um, heard from Pastor Eugene about what it means to understand true sexual liberty in the midst of kind of a libertine context of the First Corinthians passage. We learned three things that sexual immorality does. One, it harms us as it is harmful. Sexual immorality also dominates and enslaves us if we yield to it. And third, sexual immorality distorts, distorts the truth, distorts what God intended. And we were charged with two commands, two imperatives one was a negative, one was a positive. We were charged with this um, command to flee, flee from sexual immorality, and a positive to um, glorify God with our bodies. One of the interesting questions that came up from our larger group was a question regarding what does it mean for us as Christians to glorify God with our bodies? I think fleeing part is pretty clear, but what does it mean to glorify God with 
our body? And today's passage, we get to answer that question, actually. So if we compare and contrast from last week, the issue of this licentiousness, this libertinism, today we come to the other end of the extreme of asceticism, where um, one of the big questions that came up in the Corinthian church was a question of, you know, if you have a couple that were not Christians but became Christian, do you continue to consummate marriage with having sex? Or, now one of the questions that came into conversation in a loud way was, do you now live as celibates? What kind of question is that? Well, because there were certain worldviews that were existent, and if we were looking at the libertine worldview within the Church of Corinth last week, where people considered all things unlawful, and they saw sex as just another appetite, like an appetite for food, and what do you do uh, with such mindset? Well, they, many, visited the Corinthian temple prostitutes because it was socially acceptable, because it was a norm of the day and age. Many didn't believe that sexual fulfillment was possible in marriage, so they sought that out outside of marriage. And because they also, many thought, body was a morally neutral zone with no moral implication, having sex outside of marriage was not problematic for many with such mindset. Clearly, this is not a biblical view of body, sex, and marriage. But that was the world that they were living in, and they were used to that. Now, in contrast to that kind of libertine, loose view of marriage, sex, and sexuality, at the other end of the spectrum was this ascetic view. It kind of was more of a platonic view that had an um, elevation of soul and low view of body. So body was deemed dirty and low, Body was bad. Body was morally evil. So with that, sex and sexuality was viewed as weakness and potentially a sin. And thus, they shunned sex. So reacting to this sort of a hedonistic, libertine culture <clears throat> was a right thing to do by the Corinthian church. However, because you know, we're charged to flee from sexual immorality, right? However, they fled a little bit too far, a little too far from God's original creation, intent, and design. To glorify God in your body, as we will see today, it's really about having a high biblical view of marriage and sex. It's understanding the role of both body and soul in the way God designed us. When you look at verse 1, you see this kind of phrase that's been going around, and this is not Paul's words. This is really the saying within the Corinthian church that has been distorting the view. People say it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, remember, with this kind of ascetic kind of a worldview, in contrast to the libertine worldview, right, that last week we touched upon, today uh, we, we see that some were suggesting that the best way to live out um, was not to get married. 
In fact, um, idea of celibacy was considered high, kind of like a spiritual, um, special forces um, level of the day. So if you want to be super spiritual, you denied your flesh. And you, with that, and devoting yourself fully to God, you shunned anything that had to do with body. And even if you were married, um, sex within your marriage. We, we see the implications of this, um, whether in a Roman Catholic church or even Eastern Orthodox church that elevates celibacy, regardless whether the person has the gift of celibacy or continence or not. Now, it got so bad that not only were people not getting married, those who were married were discouraged from having sexual relationship within marriage, or they were leaving their partners in order to pursue that kind of a spiritual elite status. The Corinthian aesthetic um, would look at this licentious you know, tendency within the city and the church and totally went to the other side, forgetting that sex within marriage is actually God's gift and God's plan. Even within Paul's days, or even Jesus' days, um, within Judaism, um, while classically procreation and begetting children was embraced, there was, even within that time, a ascetic movement, whether um, the Essenes, other groups that really shunned body took asceticism to a new level, abstaining from sexual um, relationship, period, to just mention some other things. Now, when we continue, Apostle Paul here tells us in verse 2 that because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. We need to remember that God designed marriage as an expression for human sexuality. Um, and one of the benefits that's listed here specifically is for the benefit of re reducing temptation. Isn't he, this is clearly not the only reason for marriage, as having children, creating stability, mutual love for one another, and ultimately pointing us to our relationship with God. Um, there are many purposes for marriage. Um, however, here the emphasis is in sexual immorality. And the term sexual immorality is a plural case pointing to the numerous acts and various temptations that really abounded within the city of Corinth. Pastor Eugene spoke many times, especially in the beginning and especially last week, about some of the ways that Christians within the Corinthian church were tempted. And thus, each should be married is the point. Marriage here is given to us as the norm. And it's actually given in the grammatical term as an imperative. It's a command. Now, when we go later to verse 7, we see the exception with the gift of celibacy. But marriage is the norm. Each man should have a wife, each woman her husband. And they are to have this continual sexual relation with one another within the marriage bed. Again, to go back, so if you 
find this passage to be suggesting that the main reason is so that you don't get in trouble sexually, again, remember, people were making a case that everyone should be single, and Apostle Paul is teaching us that everyone can't be single, or you'll be falling into sexual morality because the desire is strong and Satan is going to tempt you. So the norm is marriage between man and a woman as we see from Genesis on to Revelation. When we continue in verse 3, we are reminded that the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. And ultimately, neither the wife nor the husband really has authority over their own body but really belongs to the other. The word conjugal rights here um, can be translated as a debt, duty, or obligation. So in essence, you have an obligation, you have a debt when you are married to your spouse that you are really, the other person um, should be receiving You owe that to your spouse. And it's a present imperative, meaning you continuously render that to your spouse. You you continually owe that debt, that duty, that obligation to your spouse. And here, the duty, the debt that is spoken of is actually sexual relationship. Neither the wife nor the husband has a right to use their body as they will. You know, there are many reasons um, why spouses withhold what is due to the other. Um, people tell me they're tired, there's resentment, <clears throat> there's disinterest, boredom, just to list a few. And a Christian husband or Christian wife has no such right to withhold. I was having a conversation with a Christian couple, as they consider themselves, and they're telling me, the husband was telling me that they haven't had sex in about one and a half to two years, and he was just telling me that he's just not interested. And the wife is telling me uh, on the side that it's like, need help. Um, And by the husband not giving what the wife um, deserved, the, by not fulfilling his duty, the debt that he owed to his wife, it was compromising and tempting the wife for the past year and a half. He was so self-absorbed, he thought, I don't have a desire. It's okay. And in a way, disclosed his kind of platonic view of sex, body, and how unbiblical his view of sex, marriage, and sexuality was, and how he was really stumbling his wife by withholding that sexual intimacy that he was supposed to give to his wife. There is this beautiful picture that Bible speaks of that sex is about mutually giving of self to the other. Now, we live in a day and age where it's the media, the licentious, pseudo, narrow definition of sex that's been disclosed, shared, and permeated. How much more the truth, 
the original design needs to be spoken of, whether at church, at home, yet we are shy about speaking of such things, aren't we? This beautiful language of mutual owning of our body by the other shows us a picture of a way to give. That marriage um, is really about giving satisfaction to your spouse. This language of equality and mutuality is actually quite revolutionary, if you think about it. In a patriarchal society as it was in Paul's day, where male sexual dominance and primacy was often the, the highlight, the language of meeting needs and desires of women was really rarely considered. And it was radically progressive to say this is about equally owing both spouses. God ultimately is saying that sex is a way that you give yourself totally to the other, to your spouse. I belong completely and totally and exclusively to you. And it is a beautiful picture of marriage where both husband and wife are each giving selflessly to the other. And if you think about that, you should come to passages like uh, Philippians 2, where we are called to um, have other person's interests before our own. And to those of us who are married, our closest neighbor is our spouse. And it is our spouse's interest that we are to place over ours. And this self-giving service is talking about sex. As we continue, Apostle Paul tells us not to deprive one another. Deprive about, he's talking about sex within marriage. Um, <clears throat> with an exception of an agreement for a limited time. Now, this is kind of really interesting and really poignant and painful for the Corinthian church because the language of depriving one another echoes of this uh, litigious language that was used in the previous chapter, chapter 6. Remember, they were suing one another, right? Because um, they didn't want to lose, right? They didn't want to uh, be denied of their rights. So here, Apostle Paul is using this litigious language that echoes of this kind of a deliberate um, language of rights that we have and debt that we owe. And basically, you see the language, do not deprive, echoing, do not defraud. Do not defraud your marriage partners with conjugal rights. It cuts to their arrogance that the church in Corinth has been filled and infiltrated with. With this kind of haughtiness, I have my rights, it's about me getting what I deserve. Jewish teachers back in those days would debate about what would be considered like reasonable duration to abstain from sexual intercourse within uh, marriage. Some would say two weeks, some would say one week. But here, again, the, the emphasis is don't deprive of that sexual intimacy. Um, because if you do, what you are doing is you are preparing a condition where Satan can tempt your spouse. 
I can't imagine thinking about that wife going through a year and a half to two years where her husband, just because his libido has declined, has no interest, chooses not to serve his wife. And here, if you think about it, to those who have been really affected by this kind of ascetic worldview, to hear that um, you are to have this sexual relationship is really mind-blowing. And to do it regularly so that, what, you may remain holy. For them, they're thinking, well, sex is dirty. I want to be holy so I can't have sex with my spouse is their mindset. Apostle Paul is teaching, you know what? If you want to be holy, you have to have sexual relations with your spouse. You have to give to your spouse because if you don't, you're potentially leaving Satan to tempt your spouse, especially knowing the culture, the day, and the context of where you live. Wake up is what he's saying. But this temporary abstinence, remember many Corinthians are thinking, at least the non-licentious you know, ones are thinking, you've you got to be just celibate. Here we see temporary abstinence. But these are the conditions that Apostle Paul gives. One, it has to be in agreement. It can't be one person saying to the spouse, let's do it, kind of forcing it. But the word here. Um, it's literally translated as in symphony, in unison. you got to be in agreement with your spouse if you're going to temporarily abstain from having sex. Second is that it has to be for just a season. It can't, it can't be for a year and a half. Here, this is also another special word. It's uh, the word for kairos. Versus chronos. Chronos is just time in general. Kairos refers to divine time, God's appointed time. Perhaps your family is going through something dire and you need to pray. Perhaps your church is going through something really serious and you need to pray. Perhaps your country is going through something significant and you need to pray as a, a, a husband and wife. Perhaps missionaries that you've been supporting are in going through some serious circumstances, you need to stop and pray. Those are kind of special circumstances that might legitimate that kind of special foregoing of sexual relationship within marriage. But it's got to be for a certain time, a special time, because something is going on, and God's pointing, hey, you know what? This is a special season, but you have to agree together. And the third, just as I touched upon, you abstain from sexual relation within marriage so that you can pray, not because you're manipulating your spouse and holding something back because you want to punish your spouse for not doing something that you want them to do, not because you expected them to do something or not do something and they did it. Those are not biblical reasons for abstaining from sex. And fourth and final, with a deliberate intentionality to resume sexual relations once that divine kairos moment has elapsed. What does it mean to glorify God with your body? Ultimately here, it's really about honoring the sanctity of sex within marriage 
between husband and wife. The libertines in the church at Corinth who had a neutral view of body would hear this and think, well, having sex with a prostitute or not has no issue of relevance with, you know, being tempted or being impacted by Satan because they didn't think body was affected by such thing. The ascetics would, in, in seeing um, sex as sinful, would want to avoid all sexual activity, even within marriage. But here we see neither the rejection of the body or the ignoring of the soul and seeing the divine intention, biblical marriage, where God made man and woman to enjoy sexual intercourse, and in this context, particularly so that the temptation wouldn't lead them astray. You know, God is the creator of sex. He created as a good gift. He gives it so that there is this experience of partnership. Because when God saw Adam alone, it wasn't good that he was alone. He gave also the gift of procreation. And also points us to remind that we're not self-sufficient, right? And as we see in today's passage, it serves to protect the husband and wife. And it serves to create public good as children are begotten and society is growing. But ultimately, marriage, biblical marriage, is a reflection of God's relationship with his people, Christ with his church. The concession here in verse 6, I think it goes back to previous verse. Yes, you can abstain from sexual relations, but remember, under these terms within marriage, that there's agreement, there's unity, symphony, in mutually agreeing that we will abstain, that is because certain things are happening that requires, um, it's a divine moment where we need to come together to pray, with an understanding that when that season has passed, we will go back and resume having healthy, God-honoring sexual relations with husband and wife. Apostle Paul is, he finishes in verse 7 with, uh, by saying that, I wish that all were as I myself am. Now, Apostle Paul speaks of this gift of singleness, of celibacy. It's a gift. It's a charisma as a gift of evangelism, gift of singleness, and gift of marriage are gifts from God. It's a grace from God to be a celibate single where you can do things for God, to receive this gift of marriage where you live and serve your spouse. They're both gifts from God, sustained by God's grace. Uh, normally, people assume that Apostle Paul was never married. Um, however, considering that he was a, a rabbi in Sanhedrin, it's most likely you can't 
enter into that kind of position if you're not married. Uh, it is probable, although it's not conclusive, it's likely that he was married. However, after the whole Damascus Road incident where he became a Christ follower, it's possible that his wife left him and returned to her parents' home. And now, as a single, he's happy and he's content because he is able to single-mindedly devote to the Lord's work. Remember, celibacy, this continence, is a divine gift. And everyone needs to examine what we have received. The norm is that you are to have a spouse in marriage, husband and wife, man and woman. But for some who are given this special gift of um, being able to control the, their sexuality and they're spiritually motiva- motivated, it's a gift. Remember, the gift is that you are single, and here's a key. You love it, you enjoy it, and you're not being tempted. If you're single, but you're not loving it, and you're, not being, and you're being tempted, that means the generic call for all of us, majority of us, is to marriage. Because if not, we living in this sinful world with so much sexual morality, we will be tempted. Um, I look back to the way I th- have thought about and felt about sex, sexuality, and marriage, and I, I go back to my beginning of high school years. I, I appreciate my parents. I know they did what they could. They gave me and my brother this little Christian book on sex and sexuality when I was entering high school. As I, my brother was in the middle of high school years, and my dad taped the second half of the book that had sex and sexuality, the explicit sexual intercourse part, because he thought we were not ready. Um, but the fact that he found the book, went to a bookstore back in those days, no Amazon, you have to physically go to a store and buy that and look for a Christian book to help us understand God's design of sex and sexuality, I am greatly thankful. I have talked to so many people my age and even younger. How many of you guys had, had parents who talked to you about sex or gave you anything from a good biblical worldview, uh, maybe one or two or three in my life. Very rare. So I thank God that they, although they were really, to say, uncomfortable is an understatement to talk about sex, they, they found the resource and gave it to us. But what's implicit about not talking, not Talking about it is that they felt this shame that this wasn't something God-honoring enough to talk about as a family of believers. And for me, it drives me crazy because, one, I had to go through kind of undoing my platonic kind of um, aesthetic worldview of body, sex, marriage, and undo that and look at the Scripture and allow God's word to define and be the loudest voice in speaking in our day and age. Instead of allowing the libertine culture, such a low view of marriage and sex, to be the loudest voice, we got to let the word of God and his view of 
design and intent to be spoken, celebrated here at church and in our families. Um, I, I talk to some of the families with kids as they get closer with their kids turning in, um, starting puberty. Um, I, I've been telling them about my journey. My, my two kids are here, and uh, uh, my youngest was looking at me as I was working on my sermon, and he saw, he saw the, the text, and he's like, what? And he kind of walked back. We, we haven't had the conversation yet, but for us, because I see the need, especially as families, to start that conversation, when our kids were starting seventh grade, the summer before, we, we sat down uh, for about a week. We went through a book on sex and sexuality from God's creation worldview, and you know, we had them read, and my wife and I sat down with them, and we went over some of the content, and we talked about anything about sex. It's like, you can ask anything. Why? The biggest thing is this, really, because God is the creator of sex and marriage. We should not be ashamed. If anyone can speak the loudest with confidence and with delight is the ones who have the understanding from the creator. I, I charged especially the dads and moms here. I know it's, I had a couple of conversations with you guys. You have to work through your platonic kind of ascetic worldview that makes you squeamish because the onus is on you to lead your family in teaching. Because if we don't, guess who's going to speak louder? And guess who's going to have the greater influence? By us implicitly not talking, it shows that we are ashamed of it, and this isn't something that glorifies God. What does it mean to glorify God with our body? It's about sexual intercourse in marriage bed. That's what it is. And that's what we should be celebrating, not this loose, licentious living that the world shows on the screen or people talk about in the locker room. Brothers and sisters, when you look at the Bible, I don't know how many of you guys went through any sermon series on the book of Song of Songs or Song of Solomon or anyone preached through passage from Proverbs 5, 18 and 19 where men are to be, to be ravished with their wives' breasts. You feel uncomfortable? I mean, it's not out of context right now, but I mean, if it was out of context, you should be uncomfortable. But the point is, a lot of us have either tendencies, right? We have either drank into this worldview of licentious living where body, soul, what's the connection? Or the other end of the spectrum where sex, body is bad, sinful, don't talk about it, can't celebrate it in marriage context. Those are the things that we need to work through because at the end, while the Victorians were repressed about sex, guess what, guys? The Puritans were not. They were quite honest and frank about sex and sexuality because when they read the Bible, the Bible was quite frank and open about sex and sexuality. Let me close with this quote from R.C. Sproul in his book on marriage. This is what he says. The marriage state is the image of my relationship to God in a profound way. Both my relationship to God and my relationship to my wife involve a covenant structure in which mutual parties are bound to each other by commitments sealed with oaths. 
Both involve knowing and intimacy. Both create a place where I can be naked and unashamed. In marriage, I enter the most intimate of all human relationships. It involves risk. But if it's to work, I must be naked. If I expose myself utterly and discover that my wife is seeing all that I am spiritually, emotionally, and physically, and understands who I am and still loves me, then I experience at the human level something of the most deep and profound love of all. God has seen all of me. In Christ, he accepts me and gives himself to me. Brothers and sisters, for those of us who are single, you might think marriage as kind of one of the ultimate things, but remember, in heaven, there is no marriage. There is no husband and wife. Um, it's a pointer to that divine relationship where we are the bride, Christ is the groom. We ultimately live this life for the marriage feast of the Lamb where the groom awaits the bride, the church. Would you join me as we close with a prayer? Lord God, we confess that many of us have certain libertine tendencies. We bought into the lies of this world that says sex is amoral and our bodies, the way we use it has no spiritual consequences. And we've allowed, we've allowed Satan to speak those lies. And in our honest moments, we know how destructive that lie is. And there are many of us here, the religious kind, where we have this ascetic view of sex and body. We are ashamed of talking about it. We are squeamish. Ultimately, because we have not really recognized your creation design and your call to glorify you with our bodies in marriage. And God, there are many of us here still single, learning to discern where we are, what you have called us into, whether into a life of celibacy or for marriage. But either way, you only call us to live out for your glory. So God, we come before you humbly, recognizing that our desires continue to need to be refined, and we acknowledge that we are weak. But Lord, in our weakness, may your strength be shown, and may you be glorified as you finish the work that you have begun in each and every one of us today and going forward. But we need you. Have mercy on us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.